Well, there was once a little boy outside playing in the snow. And after a short while, he got too cold and he thought to himself, oh, I wish it was summer so I could play out here a little bit longer. And soon, soon a short while later, summer came. And as he was playing, he saw another boy riding his bicycle down the street. And he thought to himself, oh, I wish I was a little bit older so, so I could leave my yard and bike wherever I wanted to. A few years later, he'd be that kid on the bicycle. And he thought to himself when he saw a teenager driving down the street in his own car, he thought to himself, I wish I was that old so I could have my driver's license and drive anywhere I wanted to go. After he became a teenager driving fast and with, his, with the windows down and his music playing loud, he thought to himself, I wish I was in college so I could just be away from the sleepy town and be away from my parents' house. And during his college years, towards the end, he, he just couldn't wait to get out. And he thought to himself, I just wish I could be later on in my 20s where I could just get out of this college bubble, get a job, get a real place, and be finally out on my own. He, he would get married then, he would begin his family then, and he would look forward to his 30s, and he thought, oh my goodness, if I could only be in my 30s, then I could, I, I could get a, a, a better job, and I can get the respect of my, my boss, and, and the respect of my in-laws, and the respect of my, of my, of my family. And in his 30s, uh, he was looking ahead to his 40s because he, he, he knew that he would get that promotion, that he would get a bigger home and a nicer car and, and a few more things like that. And then in his 40s, he said, I wish I was in my 50s so I could have that power, that respect, where I can finally be in charge. And then in his 50s, he said, I wish I was in my 60s so I could have that, that, that moral voice of wisdom, so I could have that final authority, so I could have that great knowledge that comes with experience. And then in the 60s, he said, I wish I was in my 70s, so it would just all, I could just rest finally, and I could just enjoy all that I've labored for. And then in his 70s, there he was sitting on his favorite chair with a cup of warm tea, looking outside, and he saw a little boy playing in the snow. <laughs> and he said, oh, I wish I was that little boy. And as he said that, he was horrified and he realized that he had spent all these years waiting and praying and wanting the next thing that he didn't really live in the present moment. There's a time to look ahead and there's a time to live in the now. We are in week three of our series of Ecclesiastes called Meaningless. Back in week one, Pastor Brian opened up our series and invited us to consider that if life under the sun is all there is, then there will never be enough. Yet last week, Jolinda taught us that genuine pleasure is found not in doing things to make ourselves happy, but in becoming the people that God has made us to be. Well, this morning, we want to ask ourselves, how can we maintain control in our lives when so many things in life feel uncontrollable? We want to talk about power, we want to talk about power in the light of the different seasons and moments that we experience in life. What power do I actually have? What power do you actually have? And how can I leverage this, this power for, for my well-being, for the benefit of my loved ones? And is it possible for me to make a difference around here? Well, we want to look again at these familiar words in the, in the third chapter of Ecclesiastes. Uh, they were read earlier in the service, but we just want just to just pause a little bit more uh, and, and reflect upon them. So for everything, there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, 
a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to he- uh, kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain have the workers from their toil? Often we read this passage and we, we appreciate both the, the complexity of timing and we also appreciate the, how this, the sentiment resonates with us. It feels right. Yes, there is a time and a place for everything. It's why these words were a number one hit song in the Billboard charts back in 1964 when the Birds uh, released Pete Seeger's song, Turn, Turn, Turn. Do you remember that back in 1964? I do. Man, that was, those were the days. The following year, Bob Dylan would go electric at the Newport Festival. It was amazing. I also remember talking about uh, this poem with the writer of Ecclesiastes a few thousand years ago, and we were talking about the 14 comparisons, the 14 contrasts that are included in here. And in Old Testament literature, whenever we see a division of seven, we take note, because there are two things that are happening here. One, the teacher, or in the Hebrew word that's often used, the Kohelet. The Kohelet is identifying himself as a Jewish writer, okay? And then second, he wants you to know when he uses the number seven that he's talking about everything. And so when he uses 14, he's talking about everything, everything. There is a time for everything, everything. That's what he's trying to say. Now, repetition and re-emphasis are significant writing strategies in the ancient Jewish world. Paradox is also a virtue. Now, this passage observes that, that there's wisdom that is particularly appropriate. There's action that's appropriate in one moment, and then the exact, op- the exact opposite action may be needed in the next moment. And there's a time and a season and a place for everything and everything in between. And this this makes sense to us because we know that there is a time to weep and there is a time to laugh. We know that there is a time for silence and there is a time to speak. I wonder if these words were in today, if we were looking for to create our own uh, Ecclesiastes 3, what they would look like. I took a stab at it and I, I wondered... I wonder if it would say, there's a time to press send and a time to delete. <laughs> and there's a draft folder, too, that you can utilize. There's a time to power up and there's a time to shut down. There's a time to ask her out and there's a time to swipe left. There's a time to, to run the yellow and there's a time to hit the brakes. Kenny Rogers tells us there's a time to hold them and there's a time to fold them. And there's a time to give sermon illustrations and there's a time to keep moving it, right? (laughs) Let's move along here. And so here in verse 9, the passage then shifts back to this lament that life is vanity. What do the workers gain from all of this? Now, there's so many different directions that we can go in a message like this, but I want us to focus on, on the nature of control and I want us to look through this lens of power and control. Throughout Ecclesiastes, the the, the Kohelet is lamenting his lack of control that he actually has in life. 
We see this back in chapter two to summarize what was said. He says, I made all these monuments and buildings and these incredible gardens and I gathered people from all over the world and, and, I, and I connected with them and I loved different people and I sought different religions and philosophies and ideologies, ideologies all in the hopes of finding meaning and I didn't. And then he ponders these dynamics of life and, and this, this idea of, of a time of embracing and refraining and loving and hating and war and peace. And he's in lament because despite being in control, he has realized that he actually has very little. Despite being a king, when it comes to the bigger picture, he, does, he has come to the realization that he's not really as powerful as, as he thought he was. He doesn't have the power to control. Us too. These seasons and these moments, they come and they go, whether we want them to or not, whether we're prepared or not, whether we're ready to say goodbye to family and friends, or, or tragically when they leave our midst, whether we're ready or not, these things happen. We are not in control. How about you? Do you feel in control? Are you powerful? Do you feel that you would like a little bit more power? The Kohelet's he understands this, and he knows that he's not really that powerful. And probably deep down inside, we know that we're not that powerful either. Well, what is power? In his book, Playing God, thinker Andy Crouch defines power as the ability to make something of the world. The ability to make something of the world. He elaborates further that it is the ability to participate in stuff-making. Stuff-making. Power is a gift and it's easily corruptible. It can be increased or decreased or manipulated or transferred. Most human beings, they find their interlude of power in between two times of utter helplessness. Once when they're babies and then later as their physical bodies diminish and fail. As it pertains to us this morning, Crouch says, the deeper and more debilitating form of powerlessness is to be cut off from making meaning. The worst moment is to be cut off from making meaning. Power, it's all around us. I, I, I brought a few uh, symbols of, of power and, and, and some, some, uh, some things to help us out. <laughs> yeah, symbols, symbols are powerful. I mean, they have the power just like to just get on your nerves and just make you frustrated. I will turn it around so you can hear the rest of the message. I brought with me also a, a remote control. I mean, this, this small device, whoever holds this can control what the whole family is going to be watching, right? 200 channels. People fight relentlessly, fiercely over this device, right? I brought with me my bank statement. It's a different form of power, but the numbers contained inside it uh, tell a partial story of power and control. It's not true, it's not actually a, my bank statement, it's Pastor Robert Bloodworth's. I, I, I didn't have enough courage to, to bring mine. <laughs> Stories have power. One of the more influential movies of my adolescence was a movie called The Dead Poets Society. Now not only, oh you liked it too, yes. Not only was it a compelling story, but it was the first movie that made me cry. Ah, the power of art. The movie is about an elite preparatory boarding school where privileged families send their sons in hopes that they get accepted to Ivy League schools. And power is all over this movie. 
It talks about personal identity and, and personal freedom, parental control. There is a power struggle between a father and a son. There's institutional authority. There's love. And, and there's also when that moment of decision comes, what will one pursue? Oh, captain, my captain. I also brought with me this teddy bear. This teddy bear is perhaps the most powerful item and the most precious item in my entire house. It has the ability to allow us to go to sleep or stay up for months, right? This teddy bear, her name is Pinky Bear, named by our daughter, Janelle. And uh, this is actually not the original Pinky Bear. We actually have three of them. Because we learned, like, oh, you know, maybe we should just buy extras of, of, of the bear, which sounds like a really wonderful strategy. But did you know that infants can, can pick out the real thing even at 2 o'clock in the morning, and they just throw it out of their crib, and they just keep screaming? So this stunt double was, was fairly worthless. So I could not bring the real thing, but, I mean, there's a lot of power in this. It, it changes you. You know, you, you'll get up at midnight when you realize that you left this at Panera Bread and you'll drive irrationally to the Panera Bread because maybe the manager is still there. And as you're driving, you're like, you know, is it really a felony to break into the Panera Bread and retrieve what is mine? Because there's a lot of rest and sleep and peace relying on this. Now, the bear doesn't actually have power. It's the power that the, that the baby gave to it, Right? And it's how you feel about the baby. That's where the power is. Symbols, devices, words, toys, all these things have power. So does all of creation. So do you. So do I. The irony is not lost on me right now that, that I'm using a form of power right now. I've been entrusted to, to give this message from this pulpit. My voice is amplified, and, and this message is being captured and distributed. There's power all around us. May we use it wisely. Now, there's a significant connection between power and last week's topic, pleasure. Soren Kierkegaard talks about this dynamic between pleasure and power when he gives this illustration. He says, if I had a worker who, when I asked him for an employee, if I had an employee, when I asked him for a cup of cold water, came back and gave me the most costliest of wines in this golden chalice, I would fire him. Because power is not about getting something precious and costly. Power is about getting what I want. Boston College philosophy professor Peter Kreeft helps us understand the tension of power. He says, power tries to control these things and succeeds, but it cannot buy or control meaning. Meaning, therefore, is not something that we can control. Meaning must be free, it must be a gift, and it must be rooted in love. Now, we only get frustrated at the lack of control and the power that, that, we, that we feel that we don't have, because we often say, if only I had a little bit more, If only I had this, then I could this. And here we have the teacher projecting this image of Solomon, one of the most powerful people in that time of history, and he's realizing he's almost as weak as the subjects that answer him. He's not that powerful. Throughout Ecclesiastes, the Kohelet compares humanity to a vapor, to a mist. And here in this section, he compares us to the animals. I'll read it to you. In verse 18, it says, I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so does, dies the other one. 
all have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust and, and to dust all return. Man, imagine if this guy was your uncle and you invited him to your graduation party and he wrote a card for you. <laughs> oh, what a worthless accomplishment you have, you have concluded. Oh man, you should be like, listen man, just give me the $50 and there's a hamburger over there. But is this true? I mean, is this all there is? Are we just, just more sophisticated animals? I mean, here the teacher's cynicism is on full display. In the next chapter, he's going to look at all the oppression around him, and he's going to say, it's better for us to have not been born. Does it really make a difference? We ask these, these questions, does the power that I have access to, will, does it change anything in any of these seasons of life? I mean, it's easy to become cynical, right? The teacher here has become very cynical, and everything is meaningless, and he laments all the evil that is found in this world. He laments the, the evil that's found in, in our hearts. Indeed, there is much to lament. I mean, we face constantly many countless tragedies and sense, tragi tragic and senseless things in this life. They affect our health. They affect our loved ones. They, they, they affect the way that we interact with this world, our way of life. They affect our sense of joy and our meaning. Almost every week we hear of another terrorist attack. This week our, our hearts are, are in Barcelona. We continue to pray for the nearly half a million and the nearly 11 million people that have been displaced in Syria. Every day we hear about another tragedy this weekend with the officers that were killed in Kissimmee. And of course last week in Charlottesville and, 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 and yesterday the tension in the Boston Commons. It's easy to become cynical. Especially now in our, our current social political climate. Now I want to do my best not to make any overt political statements. But I do want to speak as a pastor. I do want to speak as a minister of the gospel. And I do feel compelled to call out particular moral evils to us as Christ followers. We are indeed grateful for the blessings of our nation and of the world. We're grateful for our tribes and our families. But even more so, we are grateful that our true citizenship is in God's heaven and that our ultimate loyalty is to Christ the King. And we have been given this greater calling. And so in the kingdom of God, there is no place for things like white supremacy or any form of racism or any type of hatred or counter-hatred of any stripe. This is simply not Christ-like. And Jesus calls us to something better. Now, the way of Jesus, amen. Amen. Now, the way, the way of Jesus is not that we promote our own tribe over another tribe, but that we recognize that we are all part of the Father's tribe, that we seek the best for the other, that we love our neighbor, that yes, we confront evil and love justice, but that we pray for our oppressor, that we join God in the redemption of all things, of all people. And we're tempted, and I'm tempted, to fall into this trap of thinking that if we only had just a little bit more power, then we can control the behavior of someone else. Then we could fix our world. But there is no such thing. There is no such power. And the history of human civilization has told us that, and so does Scripture. There is no such power like that. No one can make people do what they don't want to do and make it, make it like as if it was them deciding it, regardless if they were kings or emperors or presidents or you and me. Kings have, have generally only been able to punish and kill people with their power, but they don't have the power to change someone's heart. And it's in this realization that we realize that we really are powerless in that way. 
It's here that we share the sentiment of Solomon. I'm not as powerful as I thought, and having a little bit more won't make much of a difference. So what can we do? I mean, as much as I like the book of Ecclesiastes and resonate with it so much, and and I love the questions that it brings up, and I like its authenticity, I love that this book is in our scriptures, I really do, but it's incomplete. Whether it be the writer of Solomon or, 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 or Solomon himself, despite all this great wisdom contained in this book, he doesn't have Jesus. And we need Jesus to help us understand the role of power and to find meaning in our lives. And so we have to turn to the Gospels. And I want to show you uh, what Jesus, how he helps us understand the role of power and meaning in our lives. By turning to Matthew chapter 5, you'll, you'll recognize this passage It reads, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them to the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you to take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of the Father in heaven. There's more, but the context here is in first century Jerusalem. And if you know the history, you know that the Romans have occupied Jerusalem and and, and, and all of Israel. And one of the lenses of interpretation that I prefer in this passage looks at this through the dynamic that is happening between the Roman soldiers and the local Jewish population. What the Roman soldiers were doing often was bullying the local Jewish population. And so when a, when a, when a soldier would, or armed with a sword, when he would just slap a young Hebrew man, he was provoking a fight. And, and often the, the young Hebrew man was untrained, and at best, maybe he had a small knife, but he, he wasn't going to be able uh, to, to, to fight back in, in a way that, was, that, that would be just as powerful. And so when the soldier would, would strike him across the cheek, he's asking, what are you going to do about this? And Jesus is saying, When you turn the other cheek, you are saying, you are not as powerful as you think that you are. You don't have the power to make me hate you. You don't have the power to make me retaliate. I choose not to hate you. In fact, I choose to forgive you by turning the other cheek. That is power. My favorite part of the section is when it talks about going the the extra mile, Matthew 5, 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. It was Roman law that a soldier could require you to carry their gear for a mile. And some commentators paint this picture that, that the soldiers would gather a group of older gentlemen and as a form of mockery, they would, they would give them their gear and, their, and their, their armor and they would just hold on to their sword and they would force them to, to, to walk this mile. Jesus is saying, walk that mile with no complaints. And when you get to the end of that first mile, Tell them that you're choosing to walk with them a second mile. Now, I want you to actually picture this because this is a bit bizarre. At the end of the first mile, he keeps holding on to it, perhaps, and the gentleman perhaps says, hey, the first one was required, the second one I'm choosing to do. I thought in this next one that maybe we could talk about our families. I'd like to know where you're from, how you're doing. All of a sudden now that they're a little bit more equal, The soldier himself would probably be perplexed and think this is some form of a trick, but he has a dilemma right now. Because does he he command the the, the gentleman to to put down his heavy stuff? No, I want to carry my heavy stuff right now. Please, please go away. Or or does he 
Is he neutralized by this? Who has the power here? I remind you, one person actually has a sword, and the other person is, is empowered by love. That's the brilliance of Jesus' teaching here. In the face of a literal adversary, Jesus is saying you disarm the adversary by turning that individual into a friend, not with force, not with manipulation, not even necessarily with a social political solution, but with the power of God's love. That's brilliant. There's a time to speak up, there's a time to vote, there's a time to act our conscience, and there's a time to walk the extra mile. This is where you and I can find the greater power, the type of power that makes a true difference in this world. It's when we pursue the greater power of God that we can find meaning and show it to others. It's when we pursue the greater power of God that we can find meaning and show it to others. This is the type of power that leads to flourishing. This is the type of power that is good for the world. This is the type of power that is truly a gift from God. Now, I know that sounds really good in a sermon, but does this work in everyday life? There are two circles that, that I would like to show you that, that perhaps might, might help us um, as we navigate through, through all the things that come our way. On the left is a circle of concern, and on the right is a circle of control. On the left is how you react uh, reactively, and on the right is how proactive people act. The circle of control on the right, you'll notice, is things that you can control, your attitude, your enthusiasm, where you work, where you live, what you read, leadership positions, and other responsibilities that you hold. You control the things that are in the circle on the right. The circle on the left, you can't control. That is why it's called the circle of concern. You can be concerned about the behavior of others, but you can't control them. You can be concerned about the news or the economy or natural disasters, but you cannot actually control them. In our sincerity, in our passion, in our desire to do good for our families and our friends and in the world around us, we, we have this tendency to reach over into the circle of concern and try to, to manipulate those things, but we cannot do that. It's often here, actually, that we do damage. It's here when we realize the futility of our control. But in the circle of our own control, that's where we can make the difference. Ecclesiastes 3 tells us that there's a time and a season for everything. And perhaps some of the things that come into our way, if we, if we apply this paradigm, we, we'd have a greater sense of what we can do. As it relates to what's going on in our nation, I would, I would love for you to save the date for an event that we have coming up in October called Q Commons, because the theme is uh, healing our divided nation, and it's taken place here at our Lexington campus on October 26th, and there'll be much more information to come. But again, we're going to have this, this, this framework of what we can control and what we cannot. Now, we talked about a, a lot of things this morning, and I want to see if, if, if perhaps by telling a, a story that we can bring a lot, some of these things together when it comes to different seasons and the type of power that we have. I want to tell you a story about a few friends that I've known for, for most of my life, and that the society probably wouldn't consider them to be that powerful, but in the kingdom of God, it, they truly were. I want to tell you the story about my, my friend Roger. I met Roger on the first day of 10th grade. I saw him as, he got off, as I got off the bus, and, and he was making his way to the school. I was a little bit ahead of him, and he stood out in the crowd. He was tall. He had an athletic build. He had dreadlocks in his hair and baggy jeans. And he was a Hispanic kid. And he was about to walk into a, pretty much an all-white school. 
The entire school minority population would be comprised of him as a proud Puerto Rican and myself, as a proud Egyptian. We were going to be the only two, pretty much. And I opened the door for him, and I looked him right in the eye, and I said, welcome. But not with too much of a smile, just a little bit of a smile, just because you know, you know, we're guys, and it's, it's morning. <laughs> and he looked right at me, and he said nothing. But the look said a lot. The look said, why are you talking to me? Don't. And he walked right through without saying a word, and I held the door for like the next two people walking past him, kind of stunned. And I thought to myself, I have just made a friend for life. <laughs> it turns out that Roger was from Jamaica, Queens, New York, and that was his first day of school, and he was in a lot of trouble. His parents had, got, had kicked him out of the house. Uh, he was in some legal trouble, and his aunt here in northeastern Pennsylvania was taking him in. But he, he had quickly outstayed his welcome there, too. And after about five or so weeks of the new school year, she kicked him out of the house. So that morning, he, he went to school. He had his school bag. He, had, he was on the football team, so he had his football stuff. And then he had as many clothes that he could take with him. And he went to school really without knowing what he was going to come home to or if he, if he was going to have a place to stay that night. He kind of mentioned a few things to some of the people that he knew, but he hadn't really made some friends yet. So nobody was really interested in, in taking him in. He went to, to football practice, and at the end of practice, everybody was clearing out. And he's realizing that his aunt isn't coming up to, to pick him up and take him home. He's going to be on his own. And so he's sitting in the locker room, still unshowered, still in his football pads. And it all, it all just kind of just comes together. And he's like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? And he starts crying. It all just falls on him in that moment. All, all the, the transgressions and mistakes that he's been making throughout life, it's all caught up to him right there. And he has no place to go. He has no options. And he sobs alone. Shortly, short, shortly after, the door opens and in walks a, another teenage boy named Dustin. Now, I know Dustin. Dustin's family and my family went to the same church, and I've known Dustin since we were in elementary school. And I don't think Dustin would mind me saying this, but, but Dustin was a bit aloof type of a guy. He'd, he'd like, like, like many of us growing up in church, he didn't really enjoy going to church. He would sit in the back row and, and uh, you know, kind of sleep a little bit and, you know, and, and have his, you know, his, his hat on and, and just, just count the minutes until the service was over. The girls, though, they really liked Dustin. They talked about his blonde hair and his blue eyes and, and that, that cool, aloof attitude. And, and every now and then, I would like the same girl as, as Dustin, and this didn't work out well for me because he had all those things, and I just had really good grades, right? <laughs> didn't really work out for me. But Dustin, it was, you would love Dustin, by the way. He was like a New England Patriots fan. Uh, was, he grows up in northeastern Pennsylvania, and when everybody wanted to be like Jim McMahon or Phil Simms, like he wanted to be Tony Eason, right? He was a passionate Patriots fan. You would love him. But there he is standing in the door, and he sees Roger crying. And he could have just slipped out and got whatever he forgot and, 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 and went out the door. But he leaned over, and, and he yelled down the, 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 into the room. He's like, are you okay? And Roger said nothing. Did you hurt yourself? Roger said nothing. And so Dustin made his way and sat on the bench right across from him. And he says, what's going on, man? And finally, Roger just, just broke down again, and he told him everything. Roger listened for, for, for a long while, and then he said, you know what? You can come and live with us. Roger said, your parents aren't going to want me to come live with you. And Roger said, no, they will. My parents are Christians. 
they have to do this. <laughs> Literal exact words. <laughs> Told him to shower, get dressed, let's get in the car. I took his stuff and put him in the car. And Dustin's plan, as he tells it, was I was going to talk to my mom first. And, and his mom, Debbie, was like a sweetheart of a woman. I mean, and they had a wonderful uh, uh, mother-son relationship. And, and, and Debbie was going to, of course, convince her husband that this was going to be you know, God's will for them. But as they pull up to the house, Dustin sees that his dad's pickup truck has beat him home. And he loses his confidence a little bit. And he's like, okay, Roger, hey, just wait here for a few minutes. I'm going to go inside. Dustin disappears into the house. 45 minutes later, the door opens, and it's not Dustin. It's his dad, Big Joe. And Big Joe really is like six foot four, six foot five, and he looks menacing, and he is big. He kind of looks like the Marlboro Man, but tougher. He looks like the guy who beat up the Marlboro Man. <laughs> and he starts walking towards the car, and Roger is like, and Roger's a big kid too, but he's like, I'm already in trouble, and I promise, I've only been in this car sweating and crying. Please don't hurt me. And so it's a, Joe gets him to the car and it's like right up to the passenger side window. And instead of just resting his arms like on the window, he has his head halfway inside the car. His mustache has taken up half the interior of the car. And Roger's like leaning over just trying to get some personal space. And Joe says, if you want to live here, there are three rules. There's no drugs and alcohol here. No girls come over. And you come to church with us every Sunday. Can you do that? Do you want to live here? And Roger says, yes, please. And he, he's realizing this might actually be a really good thing for him. And he starts breaking down, crying again. And in this moment, Joe's heart kind of melts a little bit too. And he opens the door and, and he pulls him out of the car and he just puts a big hug on this kid that he's never met before. And he says, it's going to be okay, son. It's going to be okay. And he calls him son. And he grabs his bags and he, and he takes him inside the house. First, uh, that, that is 10th grade for him, over 20 years ago. Today, Roger is one of the pastors of his church. Today, Roger has been married for over 20 years to a girl that he met in his early 20s. They have four awesome children, and they just dropped off one of their sons at a college for pharmacy school. And, and Roger talks about like, how his life would have been so radically different had that not happened to him. Had, had they not gone the extra mile for him. Dustin would, would also uh, get married and have wonderful children. And, and he, you, know, you should have seen him, his Facebook wall this February as, as he celebrated Tom Brady as the greatest quarterback of all time. <laughs> but for me, God showed me quite a lot through Dustin. I learned not to underestimate the people that you worship with, the people that you think that you know, the people that you grow up with. It surprised me that he was this kind and this compassion. He saw the solution before anybody else did. I should ask my own self, why is not kindness and compassion like this so natural for me? And I think of Joe and Debbie. Tragically, Joe went to be home with our Heavenly Father a few years ago. But I think of the legacy that, that they leave behind, that he leaves behind. I'm sure when they woke up that morning, they didn't think to themselves that, that, that this was something that they were going to do. They probably thought to themselves that they needed help raising these two teenage boys that they already had. They probably prayed for the transmission in their car to last a little bit longer and for their jobs. They probably prayed, maybe, God, that you'd use us to be a blessing to someone. But the idea of adopting a 16-year-old juvenile delinquent and bringing them into their home probably wasn't on the radar. But that's what they did. That 
is power. That is power. And that's the type of power that comes from love, from sacrifice, from going that extra mile. And there's a time for it. There's a time to lock your doors and there's a time to let a complete stranger in and call him son. Friends, it's when we pursue that greater power of God that we can find meaning and show it to others. It's when we pursue the greater power of God and show it, we can find meaning and show it to others. In closing, we are more powerful in Christ than we realize. Maybe not powerful in the way that the world divines power, but we are more powerful in Christ than we realize. And so for the sake of Christ's kingdom, for the sake of others, may we be faithful in all the different times and seasons that life brings us. And may we be faithful with the power of Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we come to you grateful for your scriptures. And we are so thankful, Lord, for this power that, that we sing about and that we talk about and we preach about. And may we continue to, to receive and use it, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would just make us mindful for the, for the people in our midst. May we serve them in sacrificial and helpful ways. And help us, Lord, to discern the times of what to do then and what to do now. May we be faithful in the now. So in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.